You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. And today I'm here with Robert Frank, who is, I guess, the recently retired professor of business and economics at Cornell University and is the author of many, many books. Most recently, this one called Under the Influence, which I think it really kind of encapsulates a lot of the themes that you've been discussing over the years. But in addition to that, you've had some other recent books. There's this one, Success and Luck, another fantastic book. Going back a little bit further in time, we've got The Economic Naturalist, which is a whole bunch of little tiny short explanations of things that we see in the everyday world, which is really nice. In addition to that, we've got The Darwin Economy. We've got The Winner-Take-All Society, which you co-authored. We've got Luxury Fever, Choosing the Right Pond, Passions Within Reason. And in addition to that, of course, you are the author of one of the leading textbooks for both intro and intermediate microeconomics. This one here is, I, I don't know what edition you're up to, but this one is the one that I think I've used most recently. And I use this and have been using this for about 20 years in, in my texts, in my, in my courses. But anyway, welcome, Robert. I really appreciate you could make it, Bob. Yeah, thanks for having me on an occasion I'm looking forward to. Now, I think I met you back in like 1986 or so. And back in those days, you were interested in rational choice and you were exploring sort of the the limits of it. And you you were thinking about behavioral finance and you had a course on behavioral finance and you had these two elements of what you thought at the time were behavioral finance. One is behavior with choice with regret and choice without regret. And you, you say now that you no longer think of yourself as a behavioral economist because behavioral economists are focusing only on kind of the first part of that. Could you tell us a little bit about, I think the second part, maybe we would call public economics now or law and economics? It was really a a course in behavioral economics, although the field didn't really much exist then. This was in the mid eighties, this course that you're talking about. And Dick Thaler had come to Cornell. He and I spent long hours talking about all these things we saw out there in the world that didn't seem to match what the models predicted. And his course was probably the first real course in behavioral economics taught anywhere. I, a couple of years later, launched a course in the arts college. I decided to call it Departures from Rational Choice. I wouldn't call it that now. I think that just kindled a lot of fruitless debates about what rationality even means. But anyway, that is what I called it. And as you say, I organized the material in two parts, Departures from Rational Choice with Regret, That's the kind of stuff Thaler had been adapting from the work of Kahneman and Tversky. He was really focused on, as they were, the mistakes that people make. We've got all the information we need to solve the problem. It's not a hard problem, but still we get the wrong answer. So when we explain to people that they're, for example, taking sunk costs into effect and why that's not a good idea to do that, You see a little resistance at first, but once somebody gets the point, then they seem immediately to feel motivated to change their behavior. They don't want to keep on taking sunk costs into account when they make decisions. So I call that departures with regret. But the behavior I was interested in mostly was of a different sort. I called it departures from at least the predictions of the rational choice model without regret. Those are things that when the economist says that's not what the model predicted you would do, people don't say, oh, thanks for telling me that. I'm going to change my behavior going forward. 
No, they don't, they don't feel any regret at all about what they've just done. For example, you might leave a, a tip in a restaurant you'll never re- visit again. The economist explains, well, there's nothing the waiter can do. He's already provided good service. He can't withhold good service in the future because you're not going back there. People don't say, oh, why did I think of that? They don't say that. They say, what a creep for even suggesting such a thing. The, the guy gave his end of the bargain. I want to uphold mine and leave the tip, depending on that for his family and, and own well-being. So I'd feel like a creep if I didn't follow through there. So that's departures without regret. And mainly I've focused on collective action problems. I think the modern disciples of Adam Smith are too enthusiastic by half. They think Smith thought that if you just turn selfish, greedy blokes loose in the marketplace and tell them to seek their own ends, you'll get the best of all possible outcomes for society as a whole. Smith didn't think that at all. To him, what was remarkable was that you often got good results from self-interest in the marketplace. But as he knew very well, there are just scores of situations where Each individual does what's right for him or her, and we get outcomes that none of us likes very well. I stand up to see better. You're behind me. You have to stand up, too. We all stand. We don't see any better if if we'd all remain comfortably seated. And so my focus in much of my work has been on cases where we don't seem to regret what we've done. So even though we, we all realize that it wasn't useful that we all stand, we don't regret standing since the alternative was not to see at all. But if we could take action collectively to somehow remain in our seats, we would like that outcome better. Now, economists as a whole, I think, are probably could be described as utilitarians, at least in terms of their, their policy objectives. But economists also seem to have a, I guess you'd say, a, a preference for what might be also thought of as libertarian sensibilities. And, and those often come into, come into conflict, particularly when you're dealing with these, these collective action problems. So why is it that economists who, who seem to be kind of utilitarians or, you know, law and economics people who are utilitarians, why do they sometimes resist the implications of, of utilitarianism, which suggests some kind of centralized control of, of individual action in the scenarios you describe? Well, if you go back to Smith and Hume, I mean, economics really originated in Scotland in, in the 1700s. Those people were moral philosophers. They were consequentialists, the ones who believe that the best choice is the one that leads to the best consequences overall. Hard to see how anybody could really be opposed to that idea. The opposing school is is the so-called deontologists, the ones who feel that there are certain moral rules you have to follow, irrespective of what the consequences might be. The economists are really deeply grounded in the consequentialist way of looking at things. And I think the libertarian bent that you mentioned is a much more recent phenomenon. I think the idea that government is the root of all evil, that's not an idea that was in Smith or in, in any of his immediate successors. No, they were well aware that individual action leads to outcomes we don't like much of the time. And it's compellingly in our interest often to intervene in those cases. We can change people's incentives to steer them towards outcomes we would all like much better than that. So I think the libertarian tradition that's taken root in economics is really a a very recent phenomenon. And I think it's led people astray in in a fundamental way. You've got a lot of big ideas. One of the big ideas that I think you emphasize in, in this book is, you know, behavioral externalities. There's a lot of 
implications of this. Could you describe how you first began to think about what you call behavioral externalities? Yeah, I think the the first example I really focused on was one when I was renovating a house. This was during my very first sabbatical. I was in Washington, D.C. I had a crew who would come and work, and when they were doing work on the spots they couldn't reach, rather than set up scaffolds and, and work in the conventional way, they would pile up uh, sheetrock buckets, these five-pound plastic buckets of joint compound, one on top of another, three high often, and then put planks across them and stand on these structures and work on the high spots they couldn't otherwise reach. And occasionally, not often, a couple times a week though, those structures would just teeter and collapse and they'd be there in a heap on the floor, bruised, sometimes bloodied. I asked them, why don't you guys get scaffolds the way most of the crews do? Oh, they're too expensive, number one. They take too long to set up and move. This is just much quicker. Okay, well, if they'd been having a hard time buying lunch and putting heat in the house, that would have been one thing. But these same guys would show up at the work site every morning in brand new vans with plush carpeting on the walls, state-of-the-art stereo systems inside. If they'd just bought a van two or three years old, they would have had more than enough money for scaffolds. But a van two or three years old, I asked them once why they didn't just buy an old van and you couldn't afford scaffolding, buy the scaffolding and, and make do with a slightly old van. Oh, no, but you know the other guys have new vans. It just seems too shoddy. So I think that was the first time I thought about the collective action problem in spending, you know, whether your van's okay depends not just on its absolute qualities. Of course, it's how does it compare with other vans? If all the guys you hang with have a new van with a state-of-the-art stereo system in it and you don't, if yours is two or three years old, then yours seems a little shabby. And so you'll cut quarters in order to catch up on that dimension that's more salient to you. So that that was the first example. And I've, I've thought since my earliest books about how context shapes evaluation and how that in turn shapes the way we spend our money and how in, in the aggregate much of what we spend goes largely for naught. The behavioral ev evidence is as clear as it can be that beyond a certain point when we all spend more on many items in the private consumption sphere, the only effect of that is to raise the bar that defines what we consider adequate. I mean, that's, that story encapsulates a whole bunch of different things that you talk about. One is sort of the diffusion of beliefs about the world, right? So the probability estimates that they might have about the danger of doing what they're doing, right? That's something which is more or less socially developed. Then there's the, the preferences, right? So, you know, preferences for certain things can be diffused socially, right? Then there's the positional externalities, right? Which is, you know, I'm going to have higher status than you because I have a better car than you, or I have higher status because I'm willing to take on more danger, right? In this environment, kind of. The, and then there's the collect, collective action problem. So, you know, out of that story, you, you can go in so many different directions. And I think you do in this book, you talk a lot about hurting and how hurting is, is a rational, a rational response to uncertainty in the environment under a wide range of circumstances. Yeah. Somebody asked me for, the the most compelling example I could offer of how we're influenced by what other people do. And I think we, we think of it as generally a bad thing. I clipped a tweet by an economist I follow on Twitter who had found a post on a teenager's website. He said he's all, always been told not to follow his peers, but why hasn't anybody 
told him or give, given him advice about how not to be a bad influence on his peers. He couldn't understand that. And the term peer influence or peer behavior has such a negative connotation. I was, I was really quite opposed to using it in the title or subtitle of the book or even in any of the marketing materials. But then my editor at Princeton said, how about if we make the subtitle be putting peer pressure to work? Uh, and, and I thought, yeah, that has a, a kind of a man bites dog feel uh, to it. Uh, it's, it's clear that we have an in interest in the peer environment. It influences so, us so strongly. I know very little ab about what's going on out there. So do you. But together, all of us collectively know a great deal about what's going on. And when we see other people acting confidently in a certain way that we don't understand if you don't have at least an impulse to investigate whether you ought to be doing something like what they're doing, you're probably not very well suited for functioning in this world that we live in. So yeah, it's a hugely important impulse in human behavior and to presume that it always leads you astray is just to miss the fact that if we didn't take cues from others, we just wouldn't be able to have any practical way to make our way in the world. Of course, it does lead us astray in important cases. Often, it's an influence for good. In both of those cases, we have an interest in the fact that others influence us. I don't think anybody could dispute that with a straight face. And then this fact too, what is the social environment but an aggregate consequence of our individual choices? So the smoking rate, do we care about that? Yeah, I don't want my kids to smoke. You don't want your kids to smoke. None of us wants our kids to smoke. Have you ever met any parent who said, I hope my kid grows up to be a smoker? Well, the one thing that predicts the likelihood of your kid growing up to smoke is the fraction of her peers who smoke. And so if that was a low number, you'd be delighted. What's the number? It's the it's just the consequence of all the people who decide to smoke divided by the total number of people. But nobody, when deciding whether to smoke, takes that second causal arrow into account. I affect the social environment. The social environment affects me. There's nothing I can do to affect how the social environment affects me, but there are things we might do to encourage people to take into account or at least to act as if they took into account how their own behavior would affect the social environment. You know, we talk about things like groupthink and, and we highlight them as an example of irrationality. We highlight them as examples of, of kind of thinking gone astray. And when we look at social proof, for instance, it's used as a tool for manipulating people, you know, to make a sale or, you know, to, to get your way and increase your profits and so forth. But you can use these tools just as easily for good, right? I think, isn't that, that's sort of what the nudge movement's all about. It's, it's about how do you, you know, take people as they are, meet them where they are and, and use their biases and heuristics in ways that benefit them rather than, than harm them. Yeah, and the reason they're not doing what would be best for them to do is sometimes, as the nudge movement explains, the fact that they don't know what would be best for them to do. Are they short-sighted or they're not, they lack discipline or they, they're making cognitive errors of one kind or another. Another reason is that they're doing what other people like them do. And that's been the focus in this book for me. I use the term behavioral externalities. It's exactly analogous to the conventional externalities we've always talked about in economics, like congestion and smoke and noise and other effects where third parties are influenced by what we do. In this case, the focus is on how our behavior affects what others do, how what we say and do 
affects the behavior and utterances of other people. And sometimes we want to discourage people from influencing others in specific ways. Sometimes we want to encourage them to, to do more of what they're doing. And there are lots of simple levers that are doing that. And sometimes these levers run afoul of libertarian objections, as you mentioned before. But I think that's just something that we need to think about from an overall consequentialist framework. You talk about the, the benefits of a belief in free will and a belief in individual determination, but an acceptance of the, the reality of behavioral externalities causes one to question that somewhat, right? So in the context of coronavirus, we've all learned, hey, you know, you could be going around infecting people and, and not even knowing it. And so you need to internalize the potential costs that you're imposing on others when you're wandering around, you know, breathing on people and so forth. I think most people don't have a fundamental understanding that, you know, if they were to, if they start smoking, they're probably going to increase substantially the probability that a whole bunch of other people are, are going to be smoking and they should have that on their conscience before they, you know, light up. Do you think that it's realistic to expect people to understand the consequences of their actions? Or should we just give up on that and, and rely entirely on, on Peruvian taxes to, to try and discourage those externalities? I think it would be better if people understood that their actions have consequences for others. And it would be good, too, if they cared about that. But I think the main advantage I see in trying to explain how our own actions affect others in those ways is to legitimize the simple measures we can take that would encourage people to behave accordingly. So, for example, in Israel now, they are starting to limit attendance at events and other activities to people who have been vaccinated against the virus. There's enormous objective objection to that. They think that's a violation. Some The people who don't like that think that's an enormous violation of their right not to be vaccinated. You can assert a right not to be vaccinated. Okay, I don't know how far we want to push that, but you can't insist on having the right to put someone else's life in danger gratuitously. If you attend events as a carrier of the virus, you put other people in danger. You don't have a right to do that. And the nice thing about this way of thinking about the problem is that... We could imagine a Peruvian tax that was sufficiently high that it would, you know, reduce vaccine resistance to a to a manageable level. Exactly. Right? We could say, show your license to get into this concert, or we could tax people who don't get vaccinated heavily enough that they're all going to get vaccinated and we won't need to ask, ask to see a license. But the beauty of the Peruvian tax approach is that we have to tax something. And it's long been my claim that we can raise all the revenue needed to support a very expansive view of a, a well-functioning society without taxing anything other than behaviors or activities or goods or services that either directly or indirectly cause harm to other people. The scope for raising revenue through such taxes is enormous. We should not be taxing payrolls. Why should we tax payrolls? That discourages companies from hiring new workers. Why do we want to do that? Tax cigarettes, alcohol taxes are way too low. The harm from the top 10% of all alcohol drinkers consume half of all the alcohol 
and account for virtually all of the problems associated with heavy alcohol consumption. A stiff tax on alcohol consumption would force them to consider the option of consuming less. And once they consume less, then it will be the custom in their circle to consume less, and so it will be easier for them to consume less in the next round. It was the same with smoking. Smoking is one of the heaviest habits to break known to man. We didn't tax cigarettes heavily, though, until 1980 when there were studies showing that exposure to secondhand smoke made people more likely to get various diseases. That was the familiar externality rationale for taxing behaviors. People couldn't avoid secondhand smoke, so we had to protect them from being damaged by others. But exposure to secondhand smoke, that's a minuscule injury compared to the injury you cause by making other people's children more likely to smoke or other people more likely to smoke. Do you think that economics can learn a bit more from uh, epidemiology? I mean, we're we're starting to talk about crime as an infectious disease, you know, metaphorically. We're we're talking about... Oh, once you see behavioral externalities in one context, it sensitizes your eye. You see them in virtually every domain we inhabit. It's just, I think, a simple consequence of the fact that we're always in new situations, we're always exposed to unfamiliar stimuli, and if we don't take cues from what others who know more than we do, on average, we're not going to do very well adapting to, to these situations. I think another big idea of yours is that of positional externalities. This is something which, once you become sensitized to that idea, you know you see it everywhere, right? And you see the massive waste that could be avoided in the academic environment. You look at students. I mean, when I was growing up, I don't know anybody who took an SAT prep class. But now, yeah. I think if you if you don't take an SAT prep class, you're probably not going to get into university. You'll look stupider than you really are if you don't, because everybody else is taking them. So merely to appear as competent as you actually are, you've got to join. It's more intense in some environments than others. In South Korea, uh, a friend told me that middle-income families spend about a 20% of their income on exam prep courses for their young kids. It's not making them more skilled or more competent or more capable as employees in any absolute sense. It's just... Total like, waste of money. Yeah. And so you could do the same, you could say the same thing about plastic surgery. You could say the same thing about the, the entire industry of you know cosmetics and, and appearance management. Yeah. In the more important sense, when we think about luxury consumption and the pursuit of, of wealth. And it's not just sort of status, the appearance of status, but in terms of conspicuous consumption, you mentioned, you know, cars like Porsches versus Ferraris and so forth. But, but even in very, what seemed to be necessities rather than luxuries, like our housing and our education and so forth, there's just a massive, what you would call overinvestment in these resources. Yeah, this process is often called keeping up with the Joneses, and and that's an expression I just think has been so destructive to people's understanding of what's going on here. I've had junior colleagues I've worked with on this uh, kind of issue, and the first piece of advice I always give them is never use the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. That seems to conjure up images of insecure people who are Mm -hmm. trying to appear like they've got more than they really have. They're showing off. They're bluffing. I think the underlying phenomenon is much simpler than that. It's that every evaluation we make is very heavily shaped by whatever handy frame of reference we have at our disposal. 
I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I lived in a two-room house with no running water, no electricity. Never for a moment during the two years I lived there did it seem in any way unsatisfactory. It was a great house, actually, in the, in the local context. Uh, I was proud to have colleagues and friends over. If I lived in a house like that in Ithaca, uh, my kids would not have wanted their friends to know where we live. They would have been ashamed. I would have been ashamed. To live in such a house here would be a vivid statement that you had failed to meet even the minimal expectations of, of a life in this context. Uh, and so, of course, when people say, what, what kind of a house do I need? The local environment is going to shape the answer to that question. And one of the sources of waste that's been most pronounced in recent decades has been the fact that the income distribution has been tilting so heavily to the top. The people at the top have been getting all the income gains. The higher up you go, the bigger the gains. The people at the top have been building bigger. That's what people do everywhere when they get more money. The median house is about 50% larger than it was a few decades ago. The median price is even uh, a steeper increase than that, even though the median earner, men anyway, don't earn any more per hour in real terms than they did several decades ago. Well, I mean, part of that is unavoidable, right? I mean, as an individual, the, you know, so if you go back to your original book, which is The Choosing of the Right Pond, I took it as, in, in part, kind of a self-help book, right? I took away from the book, there are things that you can do as an individual to bolster your subjective sense of well-being by modifying the things that you use to compare yourself with. But then there are things you can't avoid, right? If you if you want your kids to get a decent education, then you you have to play this game. If you want to, you know, get access to to certain necessities, if you want to have, you know, a low crime rate in your front door, then you have to, you know, play this game to some extent. Yeah, there there are things you can do. As you said, you can choose your own peer group within in limits, and all those are well and good. But in the larger picture, your choices are limited. And here's the, the example that I think I find compelling. Milton Friedman, and it goes to your earlier point about libertarianism. Milton Friedman strongly objected that the government was denying people the right to decide for themselves how much to save when they forced them to participate in the social security system. They took your money away from you while you were working, and then they used that money to write checks to people in retirement. Why shouldn't I have the right to decide for myself how much to save for retirement? Sounds like a terrific rallying cry. Of course, people should be fee free. Who's not in favor of freedom? I haven't met anybody who's not in favor of freedom lately anyway. Here's the problem. If I were in charge of my own retirement savings and other parents were too, some parents, not all, but some parents would take money out of those accounts and bid for houses in better school districts. Then I'd be faced with a choice. I could either do likewise or I could send my children to schools regarded as inferior. If we all bid for houses in better school districts, however, the effect will merely be to bid up the prices of those houses. Half of all kids will still attend bottom half schools exactly the same as before. And we will have ended up eating cat food in retirement because we decimated our retirement savings account. The Social security system annihilates that dilemma. I don't have to worry about taking money out of my retirement account and using it to finance a fruitless bidding war for a house in a better school district because I can't do that. It's not available to me. In these situations where individual interests and group interests are in conflict, 
We have to act collectively. A mere nudge isn't going to solve that problem. You don't wag your finger at parents and say, don't be imprudent. Most parents will say, the job one is to get my kid into the best school I can. I'll worry about retirement when I get there. You cited Tom Schelling's early examples. The one that influenced my thinking uh, early on was the, the hockey helmet example. Why do hockey players skate without helmets whenever they're allowed to, but often vote for a rule requiring themselves to wear helmets. It's that taking your helmet off gives you an edge. Uh, and if you take yours off, they take theirs off. You, you don't solve that problem with a nudge. You don't put a sign in the locker room saying, caution, skating without a helmet could result in serious in injury. You need a rule saying you can't play unless you have a helmet. So those are, those are times when we have to dust off John Stuart Mill's On Liberty Mill I think was the greatest champion of individual liberty. He said the only legitimate reason to tell an individual that he or she can't do what's desired is to prevent uh, undue harm to others. He didn't say undue harm, but he must have meant that since there's nothing you can do anytime, anywhere that doesn't cause at least some harm to somebody out there. If you're going to do something that's not going to benefit you much, but it's going to cause undue harm to others, that's a perfectly legitimate rationale for the collective to say, no, we don't want ourselves to do those things. Right. And so a subset of these scenarios are crying out for what you would call kind of a positional arms control agreement. Yes. Everyone the Social Security tax is one. Mm -hmm. The progressive income tax is one. Better still, we could adopt a progressive consumption tax tax the next dollar of consumption at ever steeper rates, and then the people at the top who are initiating these expenditure cascades, people would spend less, and that would be a good thing. I think you call this the mother of all cognitive illusions, right? The resistance to this idea is based on an illusion. Yeah, it's, it's long uh, been my theme, Greg, that if the, the wealthy spent less on high-end consumption, if they did that in tandem, that would merely lower the bar that defines what they feel they need to spend on those things. They wouldn't be any less happier. Now, of course, this wouldn't eliminate the jockeying for, for status, right? This wouldn't eliminate the positional externalities. It would just mean that the prices of these things would have to come down, right? Yeah, nothing we do will alter the fact that there are going to be 10% of the people in the top 10%. That's a given. And much of what's good in life is doled out according to where you are in the hierarchy. The fact of the matter is that's just not going to change. But because there are such rich rewards from being at the top of the hierarchy, people invest enormous sums trying to get there. And many of those expenditures are exactly analogous to arms expenditures and military arms race. And it's completely uncontroversial to embrace the logic of the arms control agreement. We'd all rather spend more on schools and hospitals, but because having relatively fewer arms than our rivals entails a risk of loss of independence, we don't dare spend less there. So in order to keep on par in that domain, we've got to find more resources. Where do they come from? From schools and hospitals. And so if we can sign an agreement an enforceable agreement that will steer resources away from bombs into schools and hospitals, that seems like a good idea. And people do that when they can. These other policies are analogous to that. There are some other less comprehensive policy proposals that have attempted to address this. You mentioned some 
in your book, like taxes on luxury goods, right? I mean, I think there, there are obvious reasons why that would be insufficient, right? Those attempts to tax specific luxuries, the things that are considered to be wasteful in the particular, have almost and everywhere been failures. If you tax something because it's considered frivolous, there are a lot of things out there. If you're trying to demonstrate that you've got robust purchasing power to others, there are, are people for whom that does seem to be a goal. Then if you tax luxury cars, then they'll buy luxury airplanes. If you tax airplanes, they'll buy luxury mansions. There's always something you can switch to. No, I think if we want to take the tax approach to rain across the board, consumption increases in where they do the least good, the, the, the simplest proposal is one I've long advocated, which is the progressive consumption tax. You report your income to the IRS the same as you always do, maybe simplify it, that would be a good thing. Then report how much you added to your savings during the year. That's what people do for their tax-sheltered retirement accounts. The difference between those two numbers, income minus savings, is how much you spent during the year. That minus a standard deduction is what we tax. And there's no tax for small amounts, small rates of tax for intermediate amounts. But then let that number grow big enough and we can keep raising the marginal tax rate on it as much as we like. We will not only won't discourage investment and savings by doing that, we'll encourage it. I think it's obvious what the obstacles are to the implementation of such a policy, right? You'd have to convince a, a majority of, of influential voters to, to vote in favor. But there are, there are other more controlled environments where you don't have to go out and convince that many people. So within organizations, and I think in, in Choosing the Right Pond, you, you talked about how you know, organizations are these enclosed environments and they can kind of decide on what the various rankings are and the status hierarchies are within that organization. How can an organization make sure that the the efforts and, and labor of the people in the organization are directed towards productive economic activity and not towards kind of, you know, positional battles? You don't want to say incentives don't matter. I think there are reasons that salespeople are put on commission rather than straight salary. They'll hustle more. But there are limits to incentives. We know that factory workers always and everywhere organize to try to inhibit the use of piece rates in their pay schemes. Why? Because they say if management sees how productive we can be under the piece rate, they'll just reduce the piece rate and then we'll have to work twice as hard for the same money we used to get. That may be a valid fear in some instances. It's also true that creative management could figure out ways to, to get around that problem. So I think you have to really look at the incentive problem on a case-by-case -case basis uh, to see what to do there. But there's no incompatibility between preserving incentives in micro-environments and at the same time taking macro steps that lessen the impact of a lot of these arms races. One of the things you mentioned in the book is that the you know ratio of CEO salary to entry-level employee has just exploded over the last couple of decades. And I think part of the explanation is that the labor mobility, right? The external labor markets. So, you know, if you were to somehow compress the wage ladder within the organization, some of those folks would just leave to go to other organizations that, that offer the higher compensation packages. There's the old statement, you can't have socialism in one country. If you want to solve collective action problems, it's often impractical to do that in too micro a level. I had, had some activists approach me years ago to try to 
come up with a proposal for a single-payer health plan for Ithaca, New York. And as I tried to explain to them, if we did that, then the taxpayers who would have to support it would have an incentive to move to surrounding counties. The people who needed health care in surrounding counties would have an incentive to move to Ithaca. It would collapse. I don't know, maybe economists exaggerate that problem, uh, but the problem is real. And if we can solve it at a broader level, that's often better than solving it at a narrow level. And anyway, proposals to cap executive pay uh, really are malevolent. If we capped CEO pay, then we'd see more personal injury lawyers. The problem is that pay at the top has escalated very sharply beyond any consumption needs of people at the top. We can argue about how much of that is due to the fact that people at the top are worth more. That was the claim Phil Cook and I staked out in the winner-take-all society, namely that technology has amplified the productivity differentials of the best players. They can serve a broader swath of the market now than before, and so they're, they're worth more. That doesn't mean that they need to be paid more to be willing to do the work. If we tax them more heavily, most of that is rent. They would be happy to do the same job they're doing now. So really, there are simple levers we could pull to get the, the resources we need to make the public investments that we haven't been making. They wouldn't require any painful sacrifices from the people at the top. The trick is to persuade the people at the top that's true. I never regretted not being... Uh, a multi-billionaire, but if I, I were one, I would have a good use of the money. I would go to Pixar, I would hire their best animation team, I would hire them to make a 10-minute video explaining why, if the wealthy paid more in tax, we could be able to provide public goods that would be of great value to them and others, and that the sacrifices they fear would be necessary for them in the domain of private consumption would be completely painless, in fact. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people that are skeptical, not about the idea of paying more taxes, but skeptical that the taxes would be put to, to good use. And, and you mentioned that, you know, even if there's an enormous amount of waste in the process, there'll be enough good that, that will come from it. I, I think a lot of folks in, in California, I know, who are skeptical, <laughs> San Francisco, they, they, they see themselves as pay, paying very high taxes and they, they're disappointed in the provision of public goods that they see coming out of those taxes. It's true that governments do build bridges to nowhere. They do spend some money that doesn't yield good outcomes. But there's waste in the private sector, too. And if you actually want to talk about dollar magnitudes, go over any government budget. Most of it is for kind of bread and butter stuff. Maybe the, the pothole crew is, you know, some of them are leaning on their rakes instead of tamping down when they, they ought to be. But the waste there is fairly small scale. But if you ask, what about the mansion that comes in at 60,000 square feet when it could have been 30,000 square feet? Is that waste? If the only reason it needed to be 60,000 square feet was that others in that circle had ones that big, that's pure economic waste there too. By any reasonable measure, the waste in the private spending stream is much, much bigger than in the public stream. Yeah, you refer to the toil index and how this is. There's, there's like a discontinuity there that's happened in the recent years. And it seems to line up with the, the rise of double income households. Is there an argument in favor of restraining the amount of labor that can come out of a single household? That was exactly the point made in a, a 2004 book called The Two-Income Trap. It was by Elizabeth Warren, uh, now the senator from Massachusetts, and her, her daughter, Amelia Diaghi Warren. And the question they asked was, how come it is that these days, meaning in the early aughts, 
two-income families are struggling to get by, whereas back in the 50s, families with only one paycheck were making ends meet quite comfortably. And the answer they gave was that the second paycheck went to fuel a largely fruitless bidding war for houses and better school districts. So yes, I think the ability to tax resources that are associated with harmful activities and that harm in a very general sense to provide coverage for the things that really matter the most. And here, having more time to spend with family and friends, that's one of the blue chip contributors to human well-being in all the studies of the determinants of well-being. A physical therapist I worked with for a while after shoulder surgery a few years ago said he'd been in Australia for a few years and people seemed much happier there. And he, he was trying to figure out why. And he finally decided that it was because the three things people worried most about here how do I pay the bills if I get sick? What happens when I retire? How do I send my kids to college? All that was taken care of in Australia. People didn't have to worry about that. We could do that. We could have a, a healthcare system that meant you wouldn't face any risk of a, a catastrophic financial meltdown. If you got sick, we could make sure that you had comfortable living conditions in retirement. We could make sure everybody had access to a four-year degree without breaking the bank. All that thing, or th those are all things we could do. I wanted to ask you about kind of the ESG movement. It seems to be taking off in a big way. I, I spent a lot of time with pension fund investors, and certainly students are very active in trying to promote responsible behavior on the part of corporations. And, and in their own personal lives, they, they take their consumption and investment very seriously, the ethical implications. And so in some sense, this is kind of a, an example of, of a success story where you, know, you have a, a norm cascade, like you describe in the book. But there's also some concern that, that this is working as a substitute for, for actual policies that might make make an impact it's it's hard to imagine that that people you know not using plastic straws in their cocktails is, is going to somehow you know save the oceans yeah I, I would say that was one of the the big issues that working on this most recent book changed my thinking about i was in lockstep with most of my economist colleagues in thinking that Examples like the ones you cited of what I think are often called conscious consumption, uh, you know, voluntary restraint on behalf of the environment, uh, were really an ineffective way to try to address the problems that people are worried about. If I buy a hybrid, the air quality is the same as if I don't buy a hybrid. If everybody else bought one, that would matter. But then if everybody else bought one, the air quality would be good, even if I didn't buy one. So economists have all, always favored robust change in public policies like high levels of public investment in green energy, uh, a very stiff carbon tax, things of that sort that give people very little choice but to behave in a way that has beneficial effects on the environment. I still think those policy changes are necessary, but I've completely backed away from the claim that those individual steps aren't useful. And it's really two things that, that led me to change my mind about that. One is that the Individual steps, it's true that the direct effect of them is small, trivial, insignificant, however you would want to characterize it, but that's not the end of the story typically. So that if, for example, in Southern California, if I put a solar panel on my roof, according to one seminal early study, four months would pass before somebody copied me. 
and they have ways of estimating whether that second installation would have occurred even if I hadn't done that. So this is a, a, an actual copycat installation. Another four months pass. Each of those two installations spawns another copy of cat, so we've got four. So another month, four months pass, we've got eight. After two years, we've got 32 solar panels. That's just in the one zip code. So it's a huge multiplier. You do a small thing, what you do has an effect on what others do. What they do has an effect on what still others do and so on. So to say that's not important is just to miss the magnitude of, of the impacts of that sort. But the other reason I changed my mind, I, I think may even be more important, which is that you know, I think economists have the wrong picture when we assume that people come into the world with fully shaped identities and preferences. Aristotle saw this more clearly. He said, we are works in progress. We, we become who we are. We're creatures of habit. So when you engage in a, even a minor act of self-denial, you walk instead of drive, you eat less meat one day a week, you alter who you are. If you weren't a climate advocate to begin with, you become more of one. If you were one, you become more of one there too. And and then you become much more likely to knock on doors, to write checks to the campaign committees of politicians who will, if elected, enact the policies that economists have always said we need to enact. So I think, yeah, the individual behaviors are vastly more important than I ever imagined. Yeah, and you describe some of these kind of norm cascades in the book, which we've lived in the last 20 years, like gay marriage and legalized marijuana. And yet, you know, with Andrew Sullivan's article and, and you, you describe the process and you have a, even a, you have an economic model, right? Which is, you know, kind of a information cascade built on information right. cascade idea, which, which is very compelling. Do you see the, the possibility of a similar type of change in thinking around say global warming? Is that possible in, in our lifetime? We're in the midst of a, of a huge cascade already there. It wasn't very long ago that ostensibly serious people in the U.S. were arguing about whether there was climate change underway. I very rarely hear anybody advance that argument anymore. Inhofe, the senator for, from Oklahoma, a lofty committee chair, brings a snowball into the Senate chamber on late February day as proof that the climate couldn't be heating up. He might do that again, but my bet is that he won't do that again. He suffered a fair amount of ridicule when he did it then. He would be laughed out of the chamber if he tried that today. I, I think the question now is, how do we stop people from thinking that the, the problem is hopeless, that it's too late to act? It is not too late to act by my reading of the evidence. And in fact, the effort we would need to mount in order to contain the problem although hugely costly in ab absolute terms, would not be a psychological burden of any great sort. Towards the end of the book, you, you have some words to say about persuasion, right? And how difficult it is, but you also offer some hopeful ideas around persuasion. And you tell a story about how you were giving a talk to an audience of people who were initially hostile to the idea of uh, a consumption tax, and, and you were able to kind of persuade them that it made sense. But then you also mentioned that if you had to do this in a, in a tweet, it would probably not work. Do you worry <laughs> that the quality of discussion around so many policy issues is, is relatively low in certain environments, or are you optimistic? It doesn't have to be book length to get somebody to think in a fresh way about something. I, I cite in the book example that was very instructive to me. The title of my last chapter is Ask, Don't Tell. If you try to explain to your 
conversation partner why she's wrong, that never works. You just kindle a defensive reaction and you get nowhere. If you can somehow ask the right question, just engage, listen attentively, and, and find the right moment to ask the right question, often that can get somebody to think in fresh ways about even a pretty stubborn problem. I think conversations with people in opposite camps are very difficult, but it's worth thinking about the possibility of steering them in productive directions. It's not an endeavor that's always and everywhere doomed to failure. We can make progress there too. And you mentioned in your teaching that you use techniques where students are required to apply concepts in ways that force them to learn on their own rather than sort of being lectured to. (laughs) What techniques would you advise whether instructors of economics or other disciplines to use to try to, you know, help students to, to, to learn better. The lucky thing in economics is that there are really only a short number of ideas that do most of the work. You do a pretty thick book here, so just saying. We would argue for a long time about what, what would appear on a list of the half dozen or so important ideas, but if we asked a thousand different economists, we'd get a thousand different lists. There be a lot of overlap in the items on those lists. And I think the courses fail, and they do fail on average. I mean, the the students who take introductory courses don't score any better on exams that test their comprehension of basic principles given six months after they left the course than other people given those same exams who didn't even take the course at all. What a dismal performance that is. And I think mainly it's because we try to teach far too much. You've held up the book. It is thick. The book has to be thick because people have different ideas about what they want to teach. But my exhortation to people teaching the course has been to try to figure out in advance the things you think are most important and then find ways to come back to those again and again in the context of examples drawn from familiar contexts and let people see them at work. And and the assignment that has really worked best for me over the years is uh, something I call the economic naturalist writing assignment. And it's very simple. I tell students, uh, pose an interesting question based on something you've experienced or seen personally out there in the world, and then use simple economic principles in an effort to craft a plausible answer to it, 500 words max. They talk about them with one another. That's a conversational goldmine. So I think if you can get people to experience the intellectual pleasure of answering an interesting question, one that they themselves found themselves curious about, uh, that ignites a process whereby as each year passes, they get better at applying economic ideas rather than have them just decay in a matter of weeks. Now, you talk in the book about success and luck, and of course, you can't succeed without being a hard worker. And, and we know you're a pretty darn hard worker, but you've also had quite a bit of luck in your life. And uh, you've had some kind of random fortuitous events that have put you on the path that you ultimately took. What sorts of experiences that maybe were unintended experiences would you recommend that economists try to replicate so that they can get as well-rounded of a background that you've gotten to help generate insights like the ones that you've generated. I mean, when you read your book, it transcends psychology, biology, law, policy, microeconomics, a lot of different disciplines. The the economic naturalist writing assignment I just described is one I use in my introductory course, but I also use it in my intermediate course. I've used it at every level and on almost every economics-related subject. And 
And my, my advice to junior colleagues is start working on your next paper topic as if you were responding to that assignment. Keep your eyes open when you go about your business in the world and prepare to be puzzled by something. I mean, you have to have expectations about what you're going to run into in order to be puzzled. I think, you know, most people who study microeconomics are probably overconfident about what they can predict about what people will do. So uh, carry your prediction. The more microeconomics you know, the more reality puzzles you, though. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So you're well equipped to be puzzled if you come out of school equipped with the basic microeconomics model, the optimizing model. And Notice things that don't fit and then potter what's going on there. And if you can come up with an answer that persuades you've explained what you saw, that's enormously reinforcing whether the AER will publish it, whether Econometric is interested or not. But if you're interested in the question, you're much more inclined to expend energy trying to get the answer to it and and you'll spend longer time polishing up the resulting narrative because you're eager to share it with others. I'd also recommend, if you have an opportunity to do it, to write for a non-professional audience at least some of the time. I've been lucky enough to have been able to write a widely distributed column. It has a word limit. Writing with a word limit is enormously valuable. If you have a thousand words, your first draft will come in at 1,500, and then you really have to learn a lot to figure out what are the the thousand words here that really need to be there? Or how could this idea be expressed in a way that will tax the reader less? If you can hone that skill, you'll expand your readership reliably. Great advice. These are really great books to read. They're difficult to put down. Under the Influence, Robert Frank. Check it out. Start with this and work your way backwards. You've got a good 30 years of fantastic books. And if you want a textbook and you want to skip the class and you don't want to pay $6,000 to take a class at a uh, prestigious institution, you can just, you know, read the book and you're fine. Thanks so much, Bob. Gregory, what a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.